But we are excited just to pause, create some space so that we can reflect on what Jesus did for us uh, on Good Friday 2,000 years ago. And then, of course, Easter Sunday, where um, we will all be in here and celebrating and lifting the name of Jesus. Along with Easter Sunday, there's a baptism service. Um, Baptism is usually the very first step of obedience if you follow Jesus. And so if you are a follower of Jesus in here, if you consider him your Lord and your Savior, and you have yet to be baptized, we would encourage you to find a pastor this week and just contemplate what it means to follow Jesus in obedience in, in, um, in, in baptism. And so that's, that's coming up, and we're really, really excited. Um, next week also concludes our our, um, our series on the book of Mark. If you remember all the way back in the fall, we have been in this gospel for a very, very long time. This week, next week will be the conclusion of the gospel of Mark. And what Mark does is he frames up the, the, the life and the ministry of Jesus perfectly. And what he does is he, he pauses and, and he really spends a ton of time talking about this last week of Jesus's earthly ministry. And so he starts with Sunday, and, and, and remember, uh, we were, um, whoop, there we go. Uh, we start with Sunday, and this is Sunday of Holy Week. And remember, I guess this was four or five uh, weeks ago, we remember that Jesus was riding in on a donkey going into Jerusalem. And we talked about this moment of both prophecy and humility, where Jesus is not just on a colt and blazing into Jerusalem. He actually humbles himself, and he gets on a donkey. And, he, and because of prophecy, he actually walks into or rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. But then on Monday of Holy Week, now we see something else. He's not on donkey anymore. He's not in a place of humility. Instead, Jesus is coming into the temple and he's overthrowing tables and he's driving people out. And so this is a significant day of Monday of of Holy Week. We then see on Tuesday that Jesus is back into the temple and he's arguing with religious leaders, right? And so they're posing all types of questions to Jesus and Jesus is refuting those questions over and over and over. And so we just see progression, one thing after another. Jesus is walking through Holy Week, very strategically ready to embrace the cross, of course. Then on Wednesday, uh, we see, we don't see much or we don't hear much, but we do know that behind the scenes, there are things that are going on. In fact, the religious leaders are actually contriving with with one another how to set up Jesus and try to see if he will fail. And so that is Wednesday of Holy Week. And now today, the the teaching is is on Thursday of of Holy Week, and that's where we are going to pick up the story. And so if you've got your scriptures, we would encourage you to turn uh, to, to Mark chapter 14. And what we'll do is we'll pick up in verse 17 and following. And so that's, that's where we will be. But before we kind of get and dive into the scriptures, that's Mark 14, 17 and following, let me, let me just share a few things with you. First and foremost, um, if you are a Jew, right? If you are of Hebrew descent, if you are Jewish, there's one defining moment, right? There's one thing that sets you apart that just kind of culminates everything. So if you were going to reduce all of Jewishness down to one thing, it would be a celebration. That's right. It would be a party. Essentially, just it would be a party. Year after year after year after year, for generations after generations, if you were Jewish, you would pause once a year, once a year and throw a really, really big party. And so you would stop all of your rhythms and you would focus on this thing called Passover. Now, that's a strange word to you and I. 
We don't know this word, or maybe if we know it, it's only in religious circles or those types of things. However, if, the Jew, if you were Jewish, this word means party, right? So Passover equals party because of all of the significance that we have given to it. And so these folks truly would pause what they were doing and shift all of their attention and all of their resources toward a table or toward a meal or toward family and friends gathering together to sing loudly and to eat loudly and to have a blast. This is what Passover means. Now, we at Redstone, we love tables, right? I mean, we are the types of people that understand Passover because we love meals and we love tables and we love gathering together with our friends and family. So much so that we put a table on our logo, right? So, I mean, this is significant to us because this is kind of the heartbeat of who we are. And so even though we don't know Passover like they know Passover, we know meals like the first century Jews knew meals, because we have confessed and we have celebrated around a table and we have paused and we have mourned um, sin or we've mourned loss around tables. And so this is part of our DNA too. So meals and tables and gathering, those are the types of things that we really, really like. And so to put it into perspective, right, we need to understand exact, exactly what is Passover. And so we don't have the, just like the, 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 the guts of this type of holiday. We have a few of these holidays, right? But we don't have something that's to the equivalent of a Passover. And so in order to understand it, we actually have to mash up. We're going to have to blend a couple of really significant days. So when you think Passover, think party. When you think Passover, think Thanksgiving. Because at the heart of Passover is a meal, right? At the heart of every Thanksgiving is a meal and not just a meal, but you also reflect back and you think of all the things that God has done for you and you thank God for that. So Passover is a lot like Thanksgiving. However, it's not just Thanksgiving, it's Thanksgiving and Christmas kind of mashed up together because it's not just a meal and giving thanks, but it is the day of the year, right? This is what we do. I mean, so everything shifts in our culture toward, thanks, or toward Christmas. We are selling Christmas things in September, right? People are putting up Christmas trees in October. I mean, this is just where we are as a society. Like this is the one day out of the year. So Christmas meets Thanksgiving, but also it's got a little bit of a flair of 4th of July too, mainly because of all of the pizzazz and all of the fun. There's no fireworks in the first century, unfortunately, but, but there's still pizzazz. But here's what 4th of July does for us. It gives us some kind of nationalistic identity. This is where we are. We eat together. It's the main day of the year, but there's also a nationalistic pride that goes along with it. But it's not just that. It's also, it's also throw in a little vacation because it takes seven to uh, 10 to 14 days to pull this off. It's not just Thanksgiving, Christmas, and 4th of July and vacation. Go ahead and throw in a UT football game at, at, around with it, right? Because it's not just 100,000 of your favorite friends. In fact, Jerusalem would swell to 2 million people. All right, so if you're gonna think Passover, you're going to have to think all of those things together. All right, so we kind of getting it. This is a really, really big deal. To understand being Jewish, you have to understand the, the Passover. So where in the world did we get this idea anyway? Where in the world did Passover come from? 
Well, it's in the scriptures, and I'd like to um, read this with you. You may not be able to read this, but you can look at Numbers 9 and kind of get the gist of it. If you've got problems, just look at the, look at the yellow uh, text. It says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year and, uh, the, after they had come out in the land of Egypt, saying, Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. And so where do we get the idea of Passover? Well, it comes in the scriptures because it was appointed by God at an appropriate time. For the 14th day of the month at twilight, very, very specific here, you shall keep it. There it is at its appointed time. All right, we're starting to get the rhythm here. According to all the statutes, the rules, we know that God has a lot of things going on here that you shall keep it. Do you get the kind of the refrain? Keep it, keep it, keep it, right? So Moses told the people of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And so now we're starting to see that this is really, really important. All right. And so uh, they kept the Passover the first day, the 14th month, um, at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to the, what the Lord had commanded Moses. And so the people of Israel did, period, stop. And so that's where we get Passover is first and foremost, it was God's idea. This was what he said was important. And so what happened? The progression is, and the Lord to told Moses, and then, the, and then Moses told the people of Israel, and then here at the end, and then Israel did. From the time of Moses to the time of Jesus is 1,400 years. And so when we pick up our text today and we hear that Jesus is celebrating Passover, that means this one tradition has been passed along for generations for 14 to 15 hundred years. That's a lot of obedience. That's a long obedience. Just to put things in perspective, if you went back 14 or 1500 years from today, do you know what you would hear? You would hear words like the Vis Visigoths and the Saxons and King Arthur, like things that you and I don't even know about anymore. And yet, 14 years removed from Moses, Jesus is still keeping this. That's a long, long obedience. This is important to the people of Israel. And so where do we get the name? We know that Moses was commanded by God, but where in the world do we get the name? Passover is, seems like just this a made-up word, right? And so it all starts with slavery. That's right. Sure, Passover is a party. But Passover, if you're going to understand Passover, you have to actually start with this idea of slavery. So for 1,400 years, Jesus, you know, from Moses to Jesus, right? Um, God's people, all right, were going back to remember this fact that at one point in their history, they were slaves. In fact, in the time of Moses, when Moses, we pick up the story of Moses, we actually get to the back end of 400 years of slavery. That's eight generations of slavery in, in Israel's history. And so to understand Passover, you got to understand that God's people at one point, at one time, were enslaved and enslaved for a very, very long time. So what God's people did was they started to cry out and said, Lord, we don't want to be slaves anymore. We actually want to be free. And the scriptures tell us, and the Lord heard their cry. 
And so God comes to their, uh, to their behalf. And so God responds by actually going to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is the king over all of Egypt and those types of things. And God actually comes through Moses. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. Now, Pharaoh was the king of all kings. He was the lord of all lords. I mean, he was the, just the, the master of all things. And so for the God of the little bitty Hebrews to come in and say, let my people go, he just kind of shrug and or something like that. One, because he was the most powerful person on the planet. And then two, that he actually needed the Hebrews. He needed the Israelites to continue the building program that he had, he had established. And so when the God of the Hebrews comes to Pharaoh and says, you must let my people go, he shrugs and he says, not a chance. Well, to get Pharaoh's attention, God then sends plagues. That's right, sends plagues to Pharaoh to kind of get his attention. We get weird plagues like gnats, right, and flies, which we don't really get. We get pretty destructive uh, plagues like um, hail damage and locusts that would eat everything up. We get weird ones uh, or kind of like creepy ones because God sends darkness over all of Egypt and those types of things. So God is trying to gain the attention of all uh, of Pharaoh to say, let my people go. So they may go into the wilderness. So there are 10 total plagues, 10 of them. Now, on the night of the very first Passover, we actually hear of the 10th of 10 plagues, right? And as one of the authors put it that I read this week, on the night of the very first Passover, it says that God sends this final plague and unsheaths the sword of divine justice. And so what God is doing is he is actually turning the tables on Pharaoh Pharaoh once killed the little boys of, of Egypt. Now Jesus, or what God is now saying is, is death will be my final plague. So the 10th plague was death. And not just death, but death of your firstborn. Now just pause for a second and think about your firstborn. And think about what it would mean to instantly miss him or her. It would be tragic, right? much less in the entire nation of, of, of the U.S., that immediately the firstborn and every single, single family was, a, was completely gone. And so the first night of the very first Passover, someone, somebody in every home in Egypt must die. Let me say that again. In the very first Passover, the 10th plague was death. And at the very first Passover, someone in every home in Egypt would die under the wrath and the judgment of God. That should take our breath away. This is the type of attention that God's trying to get to Pharaoh. And he just would not listen. However, in God's mercy and in God's grace, he did give us some way of escape. So the only way for a family to escape this divine judgment or wrath, God actually told them to go out and get a lamb, right? From the, uh, from the sheep or the goats, get a lamb, a baby lamb that was one years old, that was spotless, the blemish, bring him in, right? And take the baby lamb and kill the baby lamb. And then do something strange to actually take the blood of the baby lamb and then paint it on the doorpost, the lintels and the doorpost of your home. 
and in the night of the very first Passover, for you actually to find yourself hidden underneath the shelter of literally the blood of the lamb. And so the night of the very first Passover, divine judgment did come. And God did come and pour out his wrath. And for some, they lost baby boys. And for some, they lost baby lambs. But either way, someone in every home received the judgment, received the fury, received the, 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 the wrath of God. You see, in every room that night, every home in Egypt, there would either be a dead boy or a dead lamb. Every home in Egypt that night, there would either be a dead boy or a dead lamb. There's no way to dodge wrath. There's no way to dodge the fury of God. The only way that people saw the next morning, the firstborn were able to actually see the sun come up the next morning was if you obeyed in faith and found yourself underneath the shelter of the blood of the lamb. That's the only way that you're able to do it. The way that you survive the night, the way that you survive the darkness is by faith in what is called substitutionary sacrifice. You and I don't know this because we don't know Passover. But it's not no Passover. We fail to recognize the fact that someone, something had to be in your place. There's nothing that you did to deserve God's wrath to pass over you. The only thing you did was find yourself in faith underneath what God has asked you to do. To understand Passover is more than just a party. To understand Passover is to understand that through the course of humanity runs this phrase, substitutionary sacrifice. Today's passage is Thursday of Passion Week. And guess what Jesus and his disciples are doing? They're celebrating Passover, right? They too are a part of this. They are a part of, you know, generation after generation after generation of people who are like there and just ready to declare that God has delivered us from our sins. They're there to say, hey, I am here only because of something else and to celebrate what God had done for us. And so when we look at our passage here in chapter 14, we come and everything looks normal. Check this out. And so on verse 12 says, and then on the first day of the unleavened bread, right, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, everything looks normal, right? It seems like this is the time of Passover, right? And now it's time to go and sacrifice the Passover lamb, right? And then you understand that when it was the evening, the twilight, you heard that in Numbers, all right? He came, this is Jesus, came with the 12, and they were reclining at table and eating. What are they doing on Thursday of Passion Week? They are celebrating the Passover, And with celebrating the Passover, for 1,400 years, they're gathering with all their Jewishness and celebrating that God had delivered them from slavery, that they once understood bondage, but now they're free. This is what Jesus is doing with his disciples. But then Jesus starts to break tradition. And then Jesus started to do things that normally had not been done. Let's read 17 to 21 together. This is Mark chapter 14, 17 says this. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. 
And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after the other, is it I? And he said to them, it is. It is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. And so Jesus is spending a meal with his friends. He's spending his time with his disciples. What was once a family meal, Jesus is not taking with his family. And neither are the 12 disciples. And what Jesus is doing is breaking in tradition is that he's turning a family meal and he's looking at these 12 guys and he goes, you're my family. And then something crazy happens. That when he's here in the upper room with the 12 disciples, he says, the very first thing he says is, one of you will betray me. Betrayal, you know, treachery, abandonment. Like, I mean, something is amiss here. Where instead of saying, God, deliver me, the first thing we hear Jesus say in the upper room is, someone, someone, one of you will betray me. Something is really, really off. And so in a meal of celebration and joy, in a meal of remembrance of what Jesus has done, he looks at the 12 and he says, you know, Rome, they hate me or dislike me or ignore me, but I'm not talking to them. The religious leaders, man, they can't stand me, but I'm not talking to them. You know, the crowds, you know, they would, it, was, it was a pretty good run the last three years. I'm not talking to them. Right now, what betrayal looks like and sounds like is actually right here in this room. The culprit of betrayal is not the people who are the farthest away. The person who would betray is actually the closest. What Jesus is doing, he's breaking with tradition. And he's saying this family meal which was supposed to be celebratory and remembering what God has done, something is very, very different. And what Jesus is doing, and he's foretelling the cross, where all of Rome would dismiss him. All the religious leaders would laugh in mockery. The crowds would be dissipated. But now Jesus is saying, slowly but surely, I'm about to be all by myself. And they're all questioning, is it me, Lord? Is it me? Isn't me. So the proximity of Jesus's um, is that sadness is now the definition of our celebration. Nothing else. Sadness is what frames this. Moving on, moving on. We see not just sadness in our celebration, but secondly, we see the presider. We actually see Jesus as the one who is going to orchestrate our meal. Matthew 22 and following say this, says this. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And he says, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks to it, 
He gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day in which I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Here, Jesus again is breaking with an old tradition. Jesus tells us that we are now in the eating portion of the Passover meal in which there's four cups in which they are just progressing on and on. So we now know that we're in the eating portion of it. And what Jesus says as the presider over this meal that has been happening for 1,400 years, he says, this is what you, you should be hearing. This is the bread of our affliction. So says a presider for 1,400 years. And then you should hear something like this. This is the cup of our sincere hope and expectation. These are the types of things that you should be hearing as I'm the presider because you've been hearing them your whole life. But instead, Jesus, as the presider over it, he says, this is my body and this is my blood. As the presider over the meal, Jesus makes it very, very personal. To understand Passover is to understand at the heart of it is substitutionary sacrifice. And what Jesus is saying is, I am about to be on the chopping block. And so these personal pronouns, he's saying, do you remember the exodus? There's going to be an ultimate exodus. Do you remember the deliverance? There's going to be an ultimate deliverance. Do you remember the Passover? You remember what we're doing? But I'm going to redefine it all because everything is pointing toward me. All of those pictures and all of those meals are all pointing toward me because it's my blood and my body. This is what Passover is. And so the Passover that you need and the Passover that you really do need to celebrate is not the blood of the lamb, but instead the blood of me. And so what will have to happen to Jesus is what happened to the lamb is the same substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. Here's how mankind and God will be reconciled through the fact that Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is the one that pauses in our place. He said it before, we just haven't heard him. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. He said it before. He said it before. Another time in Romans, it says this, for a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, although perhaps a good person would, would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. This is Jesus. He is our substitutionary person. He is the one who is our substitute. Here's the money quote. All love is sacrificial love. You don't know love unless you understand sacrifice. And Jesus says you can't just have judgment or wrath pass over you just like that. You have to have someone in your place. Someone must die for you. We all know that because of a mother's sacrifice. Or we all know that because of other places. 
seared in our memories and recent memories is 9-11 in which we have pictures of, of smoking buildings or collapsed buildings or maybe inches of dust, those types of things. We actually see, you can hear, see the silhouettes of people as they fell out of windows. This was a terrible moment in our history. And yet the other um, picture that is in our mind is as the crowds of New York were running away from the towers, there were a choice few that were actually running toward those towers. And so as they were trying to save their life, there were some that were actually running to give their life. And this moves us, not because it's endearing. It moves us because at the heart of humanity is this idea that all love is sacrificial love. Jesus Christ understands that. And for us to understand the gospel, we have to understand that Jesus took our place. And our job is to find ourselves hiding underneath the shelter of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the celebration had turned to sadness. Jesus is the presider of, of, of the meal. But last but not least, Verse 26 and following, we hear something else. I will drink it anew in the kingdom of God, Jesus says. And then 26, the meal is over. And when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written. This is what the prophecy says. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you in Galilee. Now, verse 29, this is important. Jesus said to, uh, Peter said to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. I will not deny you. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the very same. The fact is, is that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, we oftentimes look to Judas and what he did in betraying Jesus. But at the end of this passage is not just Judas, but every single one of them, 12 of 12, all of the disciples scattering and walking away from Jesus. All of them. Not just one of them, all of them. We are on the cusp of the greatest sacrifice the world has ever known. And the closest, most intimate friends, the meal that is the most precious of all, he gathered them together in the room and says, this is how I will, I will spend my, my final hour is with you guys. And 12 of 12, they will all, all scatter. In this one passage, we see this. And then they all drank from the same cup. All of them. We just read that they will all swear allegiance. No, I won't. We, we, we all said the same thing. We then hear say, yes, they may all fall away, but not me. And yet in verse 50, 
when everything matters. In verse 50, it says, and then they all flee. They're gone. They fled. They're gone. And so why does it matter for you and I? Because you and I are the religious folks. You and I are the folks that are close to Jesus. You and I are eating meals with Jesus on a regular basis. You and I are opening up our Bibles and coming to church. You wouldn't be here if this wasn't true. And yet you and I feel like we are separate or we are different or that this types of stuff doesn't, doesn't, um, is, is not true of us. And so we all look with shock and we say to ourselves as this passage, is it me? Is it I? There's no way. And what Jesus says is, yes, it is. It is true of you. It is true of religious folks. It is true of people who follow that you will fall away. When the master is struck, all the sheep scatter. It is you alone. So 12 of 12 of 12. Jesus looks to Peter and he says, you're going to deny me three times. And he goes, no, I will not. I won't do it, Jesus. Yes, you will. I won't do it. I would rather die than do that. Yes, you will. Because you will, they will all flee. And you are a part of all. And so if you doubt in your heart and mind that you are far from Jesus, if you doubt that for a second, then look to the people who are the closest to Jesus in his final hour and say, what does this thing hang on? Does it hang on your obedience? Does it hang on your sacrifice? Does it hang on your good works or your good deeds? It will never hang on any of those things. Instead, it will only hang on what God has done for you, which is the sacrificial life of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so the table that we will walk toward is a table not of your own works, It is not a table of your own good things. It's not a merit of your own prayers or it's not the merit of your own sacrifice. It's the merit of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It solely rests on Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the Passover lamb. Now where we all fall away and we all run the opposite direction, the title of this series is the descent into greatness. And that article matters. It's not a descent, many descents. It's the descent into greatness because there's only one person that can do that for us and that's Jesus Christ. For the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Some of us stumble across that little phrase, for many, meaning that Jesus is being exclusive here. Jesus is not being exclusive here, like he just died for a few folks. Instead, the many in this passage, as a ransom for many, is many types of folks. And so what Jesus Christ did was to die for many tribes of sinners. The religious folks he died for. The secular folks he died for. 
The people who have idols in their life, he died for. The thieves, he died for. The people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol and pornography, he died for. Why? Because he gave his life for many folks. It's the people just like you and you and you. He died for us all, a whole tribe, a whole tribe of sinners just like you and me. Even, especially the religious folks. There are some of you who are holding on to the merit of what you have done. And you've forgotten that it's only Jesus who can descend for you and on our behalf. This morning is a call for you to take of the Passover lamb. For you to find yourself hidden underneath his blood and what he has done for us. The only way that you can be great is to first and finalize your focus on what Jesus has done for you. He hung on a bloody cross and his blood was shed for you. This morning we're going to take of the table. We're going to take and we're going to hear Jesus say, this is my body. And this is my blood. My question is, have you said that in your heart of hearts? Have you looked to Jesus and says, you are my substitutionary sacrifice. I'm not going to look to any other person. This morning is your morning to make that decision. This morning is for you to look at Jesus and say, that is where it lies. Not here, there. And to look at your faithlessness, how you flee and how you run and how you hide and how Jesus is forever faithful. Let's pray. And so Jesus, your scriptures tell us that today is the day of salvation. That means that any day, there doesn't have to be a religious activity on the schedule. Today is the day of salvation. Any day will do. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that right now in the heart of men and women, the heart of middle schoolers and high schoolers and college students, single men and women, married men and women, right now that your conviction would fall on us that if judgment came, what would we hide under? There may be some in here that would only hide under their good works. I pray that they put those works down and find themselves hidden underneath the shelter of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That may be you this morning. Or you want to raise your hand and say, okay, Lord, I surrender. I've been trying it my own way. I relent. I'm the one who will fall away. I'm the one who will scatter. I'm the one who will flee. But you're forever faithful. You're forever true. This morning, I trust in you alone. I stop trusting in myself. And then for others of us, you're just too religious, man. And you feel like there's some kind of measuring stick that you've kept that makes you like, like Teflon and nothing can get to you. You look at your resume and it's spotless. You look at your day and everything's going well. The one thing that this 
this passage tells us is that Jesus is predicting the future of all of us. Peter, you will deny me. Jesus didn't just die for your past sins or your present sins. He's gonna die for your future sins, even the future sins of where you walk away. So even the religious folks in here need to confess that Jesus, I need you today. And so Lord Jesus, I pray that even now, as we take the Lord's Supper, as we understand this Passover meal, that Jesus Christ, we will understand the significance for us all. And we ask this in your good name, amen. It seems like my mic won't let me go that far. And so what we'll do now is we will partake of the Lord's Supper. We will take of this meal, this meal of Jesus Christ, our Lord, where he says, this is my body given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, we encourage you to come and walk toward this table in faith that this is the shelter that you need. If you find yourself far from Jesus, if you find yourself in need of just pastoral care, I've got my good friends in the back, the McNeils, and they have prayed with so many men and so many women, they're just unafraid of your junk. They're unafraid of your faithlessness. They're just unafraid, but they love you. They care for you. They wanna pray for you and with you. So if you find yourself struggling with Jesus this morning, and want to find some others to, to, to pray with you, just know that James and Samantha would love to do that for you. So go ahead and stand. Just know that these stations are open. We've got them in, in all four corners of the room this morning. And so we would encourage you, if you find yourself underneath the shelter of Jesus's blood, that you come and partake. We ask this in the name of Jesus, because his name is praise. Go ahead and take it.